Hey folks, Duncan Kinney here, host of The Progress Report. The Progress Report is still a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, a loose but mighty collection of left-wing podcasts that help you make sense of the world, uh, something that is becoming increasingly harder and harder to do these days. Uh, a new episode on the network that I want to highlight is the latest from Press Progress's new pod, Sources. Edmonton City Councilor Michael Jans joins host Remnick Johal to talk about help-seeker technologies and the growing trend of municipal police forces hiring this social startup to give them the cover they need to increase police budgets. Also, if you like the work that we do and think it's important, please consider becoming a monthly donor. There is a link in the show notes or just go to progressreport.ca slash patrons and put in your credit card. If you're already a donor, thanks. You're amazing. We love you. You're amazing. But now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney, recording today here in Amiskwichiwa Skygun, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory, on the banks of the mighty Kasiskasawanasipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today is friend of the pod, Martin Olshinsky, a law professor at the University of Calgary. We've had him on before to talk about the uh, the much maligned uh, inquiry, public inquiry into, I guess, oil and gas, or no, not even an oil and gas, into environmental NGOs, but... Today, we're See, on no, to a new Duncan, subject. Duncan, it was, it was anti-Alberta. It's oh, really that's important right. that you get that right. Yes, the anti-Alberta, you know, bad guys, uh, environmentalists. Yeah, I, right. who, how could I forget? Yeah. I mean, but, yeah. but yes, we're not on that today. Today, we're all about the newest, the newest outrage, the newest terrible thing coming out of Alberta, the Alberta Sovereignty Act. And you have been a very notable and very public critic of this uh, legislation. So thanks for taking the time to come on the pod. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm uh, I'm a little bit, uh, I think, frazzled about it all, frankly, at this point. I think, you know, it's been, it, it feels like, and I think we talked about this the last time we chatted. Um, I mean, it's just been very interesting times in this province for the past few years. And I don't necessarily, you know, I mean that in that kind of pejorative way. Um, <laughs> it would be nice to get, it would be nice to have a bit of a break, I think, from from what feel like sort of like weekly assaults on like basic democratic norms. But if you are. could just be teaching university law students about administrative law, you would be a much, much happier, more relaxed person. But unfortunately, Alberta politics uh, is what it is. <laughs> yeah, man, I think that's I think that's what we talked about actually last time. I was like, I would love to go back to the slow food movement of the environmental crisis, um, you know, as compared to sort of like these sort of like very real and tangible and, and immediate sort of assaults on the rule of law and that kind of stuff. And I know that that all sounds very maybe grandiose and hyperbolic, but um, as we'll talk about, I'm uh, you know, throughout the course of this, um, I, I don't think they are actually, uh, I don't think it is hyperbole and, and we're in a bad spot. Well, yeah, like one of the reasons why I like having you on is because you are able to take these like pretty highfalutin, you know, esoteric philosophical legal arguments and, and, and concretize them and be like, actually, this does matter for like, you know, Joe on the street who isn't going to necessarily get into the minutia of constitutional law. But, you know, this, this this does actually this is bad. Like what is happening is bad. And here's why. And and the Alberta Sovereignty Act is now law. Uh, passed in the the dead of night on a December evening, one one something in the morning, and uh, you know you've and you've examined this legislation closely, uh, both pre and post amendment, and you know you know you wrote a really good blog post on it, which we will have 
in the the show notes called uh, and you, you you published this alongside Nigel Banks, who's a, a law professor emeritus from the University of Calgary as well, titled uh, you know running afoul the separation. The Division and Delegation of Powers, the Alberta Sovereignty Within United Canada Act. It's a really kind of like excellent breakdown of, you know, your issues, uh, yours and Nigel's issues with the acts. And it is kind of written for the layman. But but your quote, I think, is is good, is that, you know, the Alberta Sovereignty Act, quote, represents a significant and unprecedented intrusion into the historical and core jurisdiction of Canada's superior courts. And so while the bill was amended to kind of take the very worst of the kind of like uh you know queen and kingly powers away from from daniel smith and and the alberta cabinet this bill still does have significant problems and real implications on our democracy and so and 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 the way government functions so i guess i kind of want to you know i want to turn it over to you for a minute you know how is the sovereignty act um how does it work? Uh, you know, how is it going to do what it says on the tin, you know, and, and what are the key parts of the legislation that people need to know about? Yeah, sure. So, you know, and, and we're lucky in a way that the bill is, is relatively short. Um, but, you know, I think the best way to come at it always is to, to come at it from the, just the basic premise of power. Right. And, and so at a high level from like 10,000 feet, this bill is all about giving the premier and cabinet more power. And, and so, I, you know, and that's why we refer, you know, to the separation of powers uh, in our blog. And that's what I'm talking about when I talk about an incursion into the judicial branch. And so I guess, again, just to remind everybody, right, that like the basic sort of building blocks of democratic governance uh, over the past couple hundred years has been the separation of government power, right? So this deliberate um, separation between these three branches, we have our legislative branch, we have the executive branch. And we have the judicial branch and each one is supposed to play a role uh, as its own functions, really with a view towards keeping the other ones in line. Right. So this is this idea that of checks and balances. Right. Which has been just kind of like a hallmark of functioning democracies, again, for hundreds of years. And it's when this separation of powers breaks down that we move towards failed states. Right. And then we've seen that. Unfortunately, you know, it sounds, again, hyperbolic, but it happens actually all the time. Um, you know, and so then, so then the act is best understood in its original form as the executive branch, the, you know, the, the premier and her cabinet wanting to steal both, uh, the legislature's role and, and intrude on, or, or not maybe steal, but intrude upon the legislature's role and intruding on the judicial role. And so I'll start with the first one because that's the one that got fixed. Okay. And so there was this idea that. The legislature would pass a motion, a non-binding motion in the in the legislature. And having done so, that would trigger essentially this like super extraordinary power of the premier and cabinet to go essentially and change laws. Right. And so going in back to that sort of like that framework of the separation of powers, the legislative branch passes laws, the executive branch, premier and cabinet. Um, implement laws, execute laws, and the judicial branch interprets laws. So here with this one mechanism, what they were trying to do is take that legislative function and give it to themselves without scrutiny from the legislature, right? The, 
and this is really important. The, the idea was that these there'd be these resolutions, and these resolutions would essentially say, you know, some federal law is bad for Alberta, or it's, or more problematically, a federal in- initiative is uh, unconstitutional, and it would recommend measures, right? And then the governor and council cabinet would then consider that resolution and could do essentially whatever it wanted to whatever law that had been passed in Alberta to the extent that it considered it necessary or advisable, those are the specific words and quotations, necessary or advisable to implement that measure. So like maybe necessary is a bit of a tether and would have constrained their discretion a little bit, but advisable is a hugely subjective term and it essentially allowed them to do anything. And the original section four of the of the act essentially allowed, you could take a whole act, you could take the whole Environmental Protection and Enhancement Act in Alberta, scratch out every provision, replace it with a whole new act, and that would have been okay under the original version that, of, of the legislation that was introduced um, like a week ago, right? Nine, 10 days ago. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, so that, so that was, that's what got everybody up in a huff. This is the, the know, King Henry VIII, uh, like laws, right? This is, this is exactly. what they were referred to. It's, exactly, right? And, and so, um, you know, and again, you know, efforts to sort of like convey this as some kind of misunderstanding or a lack of clarity. There was no lack of clarity. This was very clear and obvious. There are two terms that every drafter knows and that every politician or legislator should know. An enactment is one thing and a regulation is another. An enactment includes everything. Regulations only include what we, what we refer to as essentially a subordinate form of legislation. So we always know like the executive fills in sometimes laws, right? We don't expect our legislators to pass laws that are fully fleshed out. We, we often will leave some sort of like what we call again, subordinate or delegated legislative power to the executive to fill things in. But this was totally different. This, this was everything on the, in the statute book, you know, the way Nigel described. Well, and that's why our, it was in our blog. And that's why it was very funny when Daniel Smith was kind of asked by the media about, you know, like, why are you changing it? And she's like, well, that's that's why we have three three readings of the law, three readings of the bill. And it's like she had this whole like, that's why pencils have erasures stick that she was like trotting out. And it's like, all right, I mean, this is your flagship legislation. You rolled this out. You campaigned on it. This was like feature feature law that you were going to pass. And it was like, oh, yeah, whoops, we just put in this provision that essentially allowed uh, me as premier and cabinet to just go in and rewrite laws whenever the hell we want. <laughs> it's like, OK, that was a little uh, that's not something that is like that just gets put in there by accident like that was that was in there and they had to take it out because of outcry right absolutely like it's just it's totally untenable for them to suggest that they didn't understand what they were putting in there they absolutely did and so again you know i think i think it was uh jared wesley or you know Dwayne bratt or lisa young like they would have sort of said no look like this was a classic um let's see what we can get away with mm-hmm. and and uh and if we just like the coal policy stuff right like so it's just more of the same ucp it's uh you know it's essentially like um you know essentially you know like i think it's jefferson who said like vigilance is the or democracy is the price of vigilance or vigilance is the price of democracy um and like in this province it's like you have we have to be vigilant all the time like 24 7 because you never know when this government is going to try to do something like totally insane um in terms of sort of like affecting our rights and interests so so no so yeah it, it was totally uh and, you know in the backlash and you know and then people get into the sort of like 3d chess like was it a diversion was it is it intended to sort of like 
you know, and I don't know. I mean, to me, the whole episode just screamed incompetence and, and everything and, and all the exchanges in, in the media and in Twitter and everything else suggested to me that the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. And, and so that so we'll see again, like whether they own that to any extent, whether they carry that going forward. But, you know, and, and, and like well done, everyone, for, for raising the alarm, for pushing back and getting rid of that. But as you said at the intro, it doesn't actually deal with this other hugely problematic aspect of the bill that relates then to not the executive wanting to take the legislative's role and powers, but encroaching on the judicial ones. Yeah, like she, she, the bill still has all these provisions that essentially let her, if you'll allow me to editorialize, like create a shadow court, which gets to pronounce on the constitutionality of all federal laws. Like, am I, am I, am I, was my interpretation like no and that's exactly right exactly right right and this is this part gets into some like pretty arcane constitutional law so i'll do my best to sort of to not get bogged down in it but you know going back to just this basic idea right that that um the separation of powers right the idea that like why do we have courts and and why do we why do we entrust in them why do we build them in a way you know, that, if, you know, obviously there's always going to be nothing, no, no human institution is perfect, right? And so I don't pretend for a second that courts are always super impartial or neutral when they deal with stuff. And in fact, I've been very critical of our own court of appeal when in at least two reference cases that recently, um, you know, on the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act, on the Impact Assessment Act, I felt like they clearly went beyond that role of sort of like impartial arbiter. But, but nevertheless, I, I defend that institution because its basic wisdom is unassailable. When you have a country, a federation, and we are a federation, and we'll come back to that in a second, um, like, of course, there are gonna be disputes between the provincial and federal governments. Of course, there's gonna be turf wars. And so then you ask yourself like, well, how do you resolve those? And in a country that is supposed to be governed by the rule of law, you resolve them by appointing a referee to, to resolve them. Right. You. And, and so that is what our courts are supposed to be like. We, we're very clear in Canada that, you know, we are supposed to be governed by the rule of law. And then as a part of that, it's the judiciary that plays the role in maintaining that rule of law by impartially and independently adjudicating all legal disputes generally, but especially jurisdictional disputes between the federal and provincial governments. And so then um, as tied to that and this is where I think it gets interesting, and this is where I think there's like some real important insight, is that our constitution in section 96 creates this judicial branch, but also gives the federal cabinet the power to appoint judges to it. So across Canada, whether you're BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, Quebec, the Maritimes, all judges of what we call the superior courts, the courts of inherent jurisdiction, the, the courts that really, really matter, the court in, in Alberta, it's the court of King's Bench and the court of appeal. They're all federally appointed. And, and now, now that was on purpose. Like that's part of what we, what we described in the blog and, and the case law describes as like this historical compromise. So, so the provinces in each province have the, have the power, the legislative authority to pass laws for the administration of justice. So they can, they pass laws around the functioning of the courts uh, and the functioning of uh, of the justice system, but the federal cabinet appoints all of the judges to it. You know, and of course they don't do that sort of like from some like you know like dark chamber in Ottawa. There are mechanisms in place to get regional input and all that kind of stuff. But but I think these two things combined this this idea that it's an independent and impartial institution, 
that happens to be appointed by the federal government, I think, drives the current sort of leadership at, here in Alberta nuts. And we've seen that. We saw that in the Free Alberta strategy, where they were just like, in that document that is the sort of like the the, the brainchild or whatever you want to call it for yeah, the, the, the intellectual Act. forerunner of the sovereignty. Act. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Using that first word in the broadest sense. Um, and, uh, you know, like just just like very clear disparaging comments at the federal judiciary. And so so, you know, and then and then you think about the things that the premier says about the Constitution, the way she describes it. You know, and then she went really way off the deep end um, the other night on the on the evening on the night that the Sovereignty Act passed. But, you know, I've said before that the way she talks about our Constitution is is this idea of watertight compartments, which was like cool 100 years ago. But our Supreme Court and Canadian courts generally have all moved past that and have moved towards this world where, of course, there's going to be overlap between federal and provincial jurisdiction. The, the just the com- complexity of modern society and modern economies mean that something might seem like a provincial matter when viewed from one perspective, like from the perspective of resource development, but it might also be a federal matter when viewed from an impact on fisheries, for instance, which are clearly federal, or if, if that resource development results in an effluent or, or emissions that are, you know, baking the planet, then, then the criminal law power, for instance, the federal criminal law power might have something to say about it, right? So, so that's the world that we're in. And, and that is the world that Premier Smith doesn't accept. And, and so, you know, when you look at the Sovereignty Act, going back now to the, to the triggering mechanism, and this is what we say is like the heart of the thing, she is going to have legislators, by a free vote, apparently, uh, pass judgment on the constitutionality of not just federal laws, but this idea of federal initiatives. So it can be laws, regulations, policies, right? And that mm. that then gives her the power, the cabinet, the power to conscript essentially the rest of, you know, the most peripheral understanding of what is a provincial government in her war with Ottawa. Hospitals, we, police services, nonprofits that receive government money, municipalities. Post- municipalities, post-secondary educations, mm-hmm. uh, post-secondary education institutions, exactly, right? And so and so the question then becomes like, you know, because someone said this to us, I think, or, you know, we've had this debate on, on Twitter, like, so, like, so what's the big deal with, uh, you know, MLAs make opinions, state opinions all the time. And we say that this is fundamentally different, right? It's one thing for the minister to get up in a press, you know, to, to issue, have a presser and, and accuse the federal government of, um, of of acting in an unconstitutional way. It's another thing, even for like ad hoc motions in you know the Quebec legislature saying we don't want your emergency act to apply here. It's a fundamentally different thing when you pass a law that gives the legislative branch the power to make these essentially declarations of invalidity, which are then not subject to court supervision, right? So because of the way it's fr- structured as a what's called a non-binding motion. Um, you can't judicially review that. You can't put that finding in front of a court. And, and, and then further, it then triggers the machinery of this act, which in some ways resembles the kinds of things that judges do when they declare a law to be unconstitutional, right? And so, so all of that together, we say, is, is clearly an intrusion then. And, you know, it's essentially designed to circumvent the courts. The premier isn't satisfied because I think she knows 
that our courts will not give her the answers that she wants when she wants, you know, she's going to challenge the oil and gas cap. And guess what? If, if the government can get in, uh, the federal government can show that climate change is an evil that the parliament can rightfully address through uh, the criminal law power, which it has already basically said it can, like there's court judgments that, that already confirm that, then it's not hard for, for them to get to that next step and say, okay, well then here's, here's a, you know, a mechanism in place. You know, when, when people have to understand is that like prohibitions on food additives that are harmful, uh, restrictions on advertising of tobacco, these are all rooted in the criminal law power, the federal criminal law power. And so she knows that she's not going to get far in the court of King's bench or in the court of appeal, or at the very least, even if she does succeed here at the Supreme Court, she's probably going to lose. And so she's creating this like shadow or parallel court to get the result that she wants and to, and to give her like, to give her like a cloak of legitimacy for then again, the, the, the really broad power, still broad, like yes, they're not changing laws, but they can change any regulation and they can direct any provincial entity, essentially conscript them into her, their battle with Ottawa. Yeah, like, like one thing that is, I think gets lost in all of this kind of relatively esoteric arguments around separation of powers and, and all of this is like, how is this bill going to actually be used? Uh, you know, Daniel Smith has vacillated between I'm going to use it right away to we'd only use it as a last resort. And like, it's law now, you know, it could conceivably be used tomorrow, it could not be used at all over the next six months. Um, You know, I think there's been some signals that it maybe they'll use it with regards to this federal gun law that that's being passed with that prohibits certain guns from existing. Um, And so like, what what is a viable scenario here that like Daniel Smith invokes the Sovereignty Act, that she essentially says this law is unconstitutional, and I'm going to direct, you know, the RCMP who work here and and, and the municipal police uh, officers who who live and work in Alberta to not enforce this federal law is like, is that on the table? Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, you know, and again, the, the part of the trick here is like is understanding all these different contexts. So yeah, like I think that is potentially on the table. And the trick is to understand is that in like all these different spaces, there are, you know, and I'll admit that my own limitations, right? So I, I come into all of this, you know, going back to the point I made at the outset. Now I'm supposed to be like an environmental natural resources lawyer, right? So that's and law professor. And so that's the space that I'm most comfortable and, and that I understand and, and sort of assess this regime from. And and, and I'll go there right away. Um because I think, for instance, like in that space, I don't really see this law doing very much. But I will say, and I'll stay, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll acknowledge my limitations. Like I think there are things here because, especially in the health context and in the, in, you know, the criminal law, the classic conventional criminal law context, including the the gun registry and all that kind of stuff, or and the, this buyback program. You know, there there is a lot of like interlocking parts, arguably. And, and so what might happen is that, yeah, I mean, and it is totally lawful for the, you know, I don't think I agree with the basic proposition that the provinces are not, you know, there's nothing compelling the provinces to cooperate with the federal government, but then you don't actually need a law to say that, right? Like you don't, you know, so this goes back to again, like what is going on here? And there's that weird carve out in, in the act that says, you know, cause again, I, I, I don't necessarily agree or that the law is just about non-enforcement. Because in section two, and we talk about this in our blog, that section two says nothing in this act shall be construed as forcing any person, essentially compelling any person to contravene a federal law, but then it carves out specifically provincial entities. 
So it seems to contemplate not just mere non-enforcement, but it seems to, comp- to contemplate something more. It seems to contemplate the ability to order or direct a provincial entity to not comply with a federal law. And to give you an example, I think the only, and this is now in the sort of carbon uh, greenhouse gas context, you know, generally speaking in, in Alberta, we don't have a lot of like crown ownership of things, but like, you know, I think the city of Calgary is a major shareholder in NMAX, right? Um, you could maybe see this power being used to direct the city of Calgary not to pay its carbon price, for instance, mm-hmm. or to not conform with uh, an oil and gas emissions cap, like to not participate in that space. Um, but, you know, but but even in that, if that's the case, like NMAX is a pretty, like in the world of, of Alberta's emissions, where the vast majority of them are generated by private companies and private oil sands companies in particular, it's almost impossible for me to see how this act does anything. Like it doesn't change the impact assessment act at the federal level. Cause that, again, that applies directly to proponents. It doesn't change the carbon price insofar as it applies to private individuals. It doesn't change. It wouldn't, the oil and gas emissions cap as, as well itself would apply directly to facilities and emitters. So, so it's, you know, again, part of it is that the, the framework here, the tools are so broad it's hard to imagine every potential scenario. Maybe they have something cooked up already. Um, but it goes back to, I think, your earlier point, like, what is what happens here now? Like, does this get used in an aggressive way? Or in which case, like, it'll almost certainly get challenged in court, and then it might get vaporized? Or does the premier sit back now, as you say, and she has vacillated back and forth? Um, will she just sit tight? And let it go the way of the equalization referendum. Like, you know, the one thing I noticed is that like her Twitter feed yesterday was like silent about the passage of her flagship legislation. Mm -hmm. It certainly was. Well, and the other thing that that jumps out to me is like the language from, you know, the people who, again, were the, the intellectual forefathers of this bill, you know, Barry Cooper, Rob Anderson, you know, they were very clear that the whole point of all of this was to cause a constitutional crisis. Like they, they were acting, you know, like Lenin almost, you know, in 1917, like they wanted to, they want the goal from the beginning. These people have stated out loud in, you know, podcasts, media reports, their own freaking papers, white papers that they publish. The point is to cause the crisis. And, and so here we are, like we're, we're to the, we're to the point where this law has been passed. Will they actually pull the trigger on causing a crisis? Like we don't know. Right. Well, yeah, and I mean, and 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 and, Co- and Cooper was at it again yesterday, right? And mm-hmm. and sort of just like doubled down on that rhetoric. Um, and then, of course, the thing I don't think I got to, you know, I talked about how you know the premier's sort of like approach to constitutional interpretation has always been, you know, of the like discredited variety. But then, you know, two days ago, she also decided that you know uh, Canada's not a national government. Yeah, let's 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 get into what Daniel Smith said in the legislature the other night while the bill was being passed. She said, uh, "quote It's not like Ottawa is a national government." Uh, Martin, is the federal government located in Ottawa, Ontario, what you would call a national government? It is. It, it really, truly is <laughs> in every sense, right? And in fact, it's probably more national. It is. It was in its, in its conception. It was probably more central and more centralized than it currently is. And, right. and like, she, so, she kept going, though. She kept saying other crazy shit. So, like, the way our country works is that we are a federation of sovereign, independent jurisdictions. 
they are one of those signatories to the Constitution. The rest of us, as signatories to the Constitution, have a right to exercise our sovereign powers in our own areas of jurisdiction. Martin, is Alberta a sovereign, independent jurisdiction? It is not. I'm, you know, it's, I know it's hard for everyone to understand that, but it's not, you know, like, you know, and I, it's funny, I was just, I'm, I'm doing some work. And so I was able to come um, at this, you know, like, if you go back, actually, the Supreme Court in the 1998 succession reference, um, Quebec succession reference has this, this, this great line, um, you know, that essentially, like, you know, a federal system of government enables provinces to pursue policies responsive to their particular concerns. That's right. But at the same time, Canada as a whole, and I'm quoting now, is also a democratic community in which citizens construct and achieve goals on a national scale. Right. And the function of federalism is to enable citizens to participate concurrently in different collectivities and to pursue goals at both a provincial and a federal level. That is that is what Canada is, right? So it's, it's a, and it's, yes, it's about equal partners. Like, and it isn't, it's not supposed to be like a subordinate relationship. You know, that, that part, you know, when people say like, like Ottawa is not the parent and, and, and that's absolutely right. It's not a parent child relationship. It's a, it's a relationship of equals, but that means fundamentally, if you're grown up, if you and I have a, if you and I are adults and we share something equally, and that means that sometimes we're going to have that, you know, as a general rule, we're going to have to cooperate and sometimes we're going to have to compromise. And what, you know, what you see from Alberta really for the last decade is a fundamental refusal to have to, to, to for any kind of compromise around, for instance, it's what it perceives, I think, as its entitlement to externalize like however many megatons of GHG emissions um, that it wants because it makes a lot of money doing so. Right. And, and like, that is the fundamental issue here. You know, all of this comes down to that. You know, when you read that speech that the premier gave, you know, underlying so much of it is a, just a fundamental refusal to come to grips with the fact that this thing that makes us very rich in Alberta is cause is part is the major is part of the major thing that is causing the climate to burn up right and that you know it's that it's surprising to her that people around the world are like yeah we don't want to go there yes and and i know i, I might it might seem like i'm being flipped taking these quotes from daniel smith and being like saying these patents she's just saying these kind of patently ridiculously and untrue things but the reason why it's important to say them and note them is because like when she says that uh, alberta is a sovereign independent jurisdiction that totally wipes out and nullifies the existence of the treaties, which are like were signed before Alberta became even became a province and are like the whole backbone of like how Canada exists as a modern state. <laughs> like the whole reason that, that Canada's exists is because like nation to nation agreements were signed between first nations and the British crown. Those rights uh, then devolved to Canada after, you know, like that, whatever, whenever that happened. And there's arguments about whether that happened in, 1905 1931 whatever but like like the there's a reason why first nation leaders and uh you know the treaty organizations treaty 678 have come yeah. out publicly over and over and over again and have stated that the alberta sovereignty act is bad that it needs to be repealed that it it yeah. that it is ignores the historical and contextual reality of canada's existence on these lands 
And so like, I know that's not necessarily your, uh, you know, part the part of the law that you are like the biggest expert on, but like as a, as a lay person, and and as someone who cares about these treaties and as 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 a, as a treaty person as someone who like recognizes that like these treaties are the like the foundation of like why and how Canada gets to exist like the sovereignty act totally just wipes out any and all discussion of the even just of the existence of these treaties and it, it boggles my mind we've got Rick Wilson you know the indigenous relation minister for 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 Alberta saying Sure, yeah, the new law respects treaty rights, but that the term sovereignty had caused confusion among Indigenous leaders. Quote, in fairness, there's not a lot of clarification around what that means. Should we have done more consultation? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think there is a pretty decent a definition of sovereignty that exists, and like Al- the government of Alberta is simply using one that is incorrect. <laughs> is, that, is that fair? Yeah, well, but it's also like trying, you know, and like it's like that classic play of like trying to, you know, by, you know, and I, I know everybody loves to accuse the other side of doing this, but like when you repeat a lie often enough, like whether or not you can make it so, right? And and that, you know, fundamentally that is the exercise here. That is the goal. It is to, I think, flood the zone with shit um, in, in the language of Steve Bannon. And like, so like it is to knock Albertans off in terms of their understanding of what's actually the, what's actually going on, right? Like, you can't tell me, like, sure, sure, not for everybody, but like, when the legislature passes a resolution that something is unconstitutional, it has a legitimizing force. Whether we like it or not, it has a legitimizing force. When a subsequent judge is faced with that same question, you cannot tell me that we haven't fundamentally politicized their job, that we haven't made it harder for them to be impartial and to be independent um, in, in answering that question. And you can't tell me that we haven't at the same time also created the potential, for instance, for a big swath of our polity to sort of start to delegitimize and, and view with like lose confidence in those judicial decisions and that in the judicial branch when they make decisions that don't jive with the, th- the thing that their legislative assembly is saying. Right. So but again, exactly. It's about it's about it's about creating a new, a new narrative. And, and, you know, going back to your point, I think the, you know, the main issue like is like, yeah, first nations absolutely are speaking up and speaking for themselves and, and they are clearly pissed off. Um, but, you know, when I go back and think about it, like we have this huge case that's brewing in Northwestern Alberta, it's built off of a case that was actually came out of BC a couple of years ago. Right. So the blueberry river first nation, um, had this a, a massive win in BC, uh, their Treaty 8 First Nation, where they were able to convince the court that the amount of development in their traditional territory was so significant, so vast, so quick, that it essentially it was an effective breach, not of, of individual treaty rights, but of the treaty itself, that they were no longer able to exercise the rights uh, and, 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 and that the promise that they would be able to meaningfully exercise their rights in, in sort of in perpetuity as they understood to be the t- sort of terms and conditions of those treaties at the at the turn of the 19th cent- or the 20th century, like they succeeded there. And there is another case now, I think it's called the Duncan First Nation, um, bringing forward a ca- an action similar here in Alberta against the Alberta government. And so I, I think it's absolutely the case that Barry and, his, and Rob and some of those folks generally are tired of this constitutional arrangement. It's not that they're arguing that, that 
the, that everyone's interpretation is wrong and that theirs is right. They know that theirs is wrong. So now they're trying to, but now they, so they want to change the deal. It's not, you know, and this is, I think, really important. It's not about, it's not about a historical understanding. You know, he, I think Barry in particular likes to make this comment, like, if we were to sign now, would we, you know, it's like, well, that's not the question, friend. You know, like the issue is, what did you sign up for back then? And if you don't like it now, you know, this is what I'll give yeah, you. You want to change the terms of the for. constitutional arrangement? Okay, now you get yeah. to negotiate with First Nations that, uh, you know, Every, can uh, have understood, exactly. understand what Canada is up to and have a hundred and, you know, f- 40 some years of like understanding of how Canada works and like how, how does these legal arrangements work? And you're not just going to fucking snow them under like you did, uh, you know, when the treaties were signed originally. Yeah. So, no, I mean, so it's like, it's like, the, it's like the slow boil, right? It's the slow frog boil, whatever analogy, right? So it's like, so I, I do think actually, you know, like I've been thinking about this the last couple of days, because I know the NDP came out and said, this is all laying the groundwork for separatism. And I was like, eh, I don't know about that. But actually, the more I think about it, you know, like, I think that that's true. And, you know, and, and what I think is hilarious, like, I think in response, um, you know, Daniel Smith said, you know, like United Canada is right in the name of the act. Right. And I thought that that was like hilarious. It's reminiscent of like Pierre Polyev saying, you know, that that Nazis were socialists because the word socialism was in uh, in their name. And then somebody else recently pointed out that, you know, like the Black Panthers weren't actually Panthers. Um, and so like there's so much of just just like, like really basic sort of like the sowing of confusion and misunderstanding, flooding the zone. Uh, really intended, I think, to get everyone to like sort of like, well, frankly, right, to attack the notion that there is an objective truth to all of this. And and as much as I don't, I can't profess to have a, a you know, a unilateral claim on that, you know, like when you look at the way our, inter- our constitution has been interpreted over the past 100 years, the, the wisdom that it was, you know, wisdom, small, like maybe not always wise, but anyways, like there is an understanding. It works actually for the most part. And, you know, obviously flaws around, but what, but what these folks are proposing is just completely different, you know, and I think I've said in other times, like there's no space in our constitutional order for the kinds of things that this premier and her cabinet and her executive, you know, her leadership team, um, where they want to take Canada, not on, not on its current terms. And if they don't like that, then they should be, they should have the courage to take that reality, to be upfront about it. And, and present it to voters in a straightforward manner, as opposed to these kind of machinations, which again, like they are essentially, they've convinced their, a big chunk of their base that it's okay to, to trample on the judicial branch. It's okay for us to give our, you know, for us in this completely self-serving and conflicted way to start passing judgment on another order of government. You know, like these are the kinds of things we don't want our political leaders to be doing, right? There, there should be, ideally anyways and maybe that's pollyannish of me but like when you start to dismantle the basic building blocks of of functioning democracies like that's when we're getting into a bad place and that's when things get desperate and that's when people start you know like with each one of these sort of things i think that side shows how desperate it is and how desperate it's you know and 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 then when people get desperate they start to do desperate things and i think that's like a big problem that's so going back to you know what you said at the beginning like we kind of do need Albertans to understand that we are way, way, way beyond normal politics here. And you may not feel it on your day-to-day basis, but it is way is totally unprecedented in, in, in our modern history for sure. Yeah. 
and we brought him up a couple times. Uh, Barry Cooper. Just, I just want to lay out a couple things that he said and give the context. He is a, a your colleague at the University of Calgary, a professor of political science, uh, uh. long time, long time right wing uh, crank. The author of a policy paper called "The Free Alberta Strategy," which is kind of seen as this unofficial blueprint for the Sovereignty Act. And he was on CBC the other day calling Canada's constitution not a legitimate document that has not safeguarded Alberta's interests within federation. Quote, I want the constitution to be changed or we'll have another referendum, said Cooper. And, you know, he's talking and then he's referencing the like independence referendums that happened in Quebec in the 80s and 90s. And. And and I think we've talked enough about Cooper and then his kind of like particular crazy brand of 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 Alberta sovereignty and, and and independence, but this idea of the Quebec referendums has really been what the Alberta NDP as opposition have really kind of keyed in on yeah. as their as they try to kind of transmit the dangers of this bill politically to to the audience through the media to their members, and you know and their biggest message coming out of it has really focused on like investor uncertainty and like what the chamber of commerce thinks and what capital thinks and like what quote unquote job creators think, by the way, never say the fuck. If you're the NDP, never say the word job creators. Just it's, you are buying into their, into the UCP's frame. If you ever utter those words, like without spitting on the ground afterwards, it's like, anyways, but they, they did actually say it. Um, and so they they trotted out David Dodge, the former Bank of Canada governor, to say, oh, well, you know, this could be bad for investment. And it's like, if you're trying to make this bill real to people, I don't understand and I don't see how trotting out some like former pointy head from the Bank of Canada is really going to convince Joe and Jane, um, you know, Albertan that like this bill matters like i don't I, I don't care about investment decisions of giant pools of capital like i am just trying to get my kids to school and i'm worried about inflation i'm worried about having to pay for my fucking doctor like with daniel smith's insane plan like like when we want to talk about how to make this real politically for regular albertans do you think that like focusing on the investor uncertainty thing is is, is effective at all you know, I mean, it's interesting because I feel like we have this like foil, sort of maybe not right on point, but, you know, there's, you know, Doug Ford in Ontario, right? And uh, who like was about to do this, did, uh, did this like highly unconstitutional thing, right? When they passed that bill uh, and they invoked the notwithstanding clause and labor just like came out in force in like a classic way and just, just completely, just like, just destroyed that initiative, right? Like I, that was like, I think nobody, I don't know if anybody saw that coming and that would play out that way, but it was like, it was a real testing. It was a really important moment, I'll say, about the, you know, in regards to that notwithstanding clause and the way that it's used and all that kind of stuff. Um, and and like, what an incredible show of force. And exactly, it wasn't, it wasn't about investment, whatever. It was just like people um, making very clear. Like now, you know, I, I guess I do feel like the political culture in this province is different. And, and I feel like I'm not, I, I'm not really in a place to say that it's necessary. Like, you know, I think there are a lot of people who do probably, you know, fundamentally think about uh, politics uh, from that perspective of like, we just want the economy to be functioning well. And we want our, you know, we want to be, we want to maintain our affluence or whatever. So I, I don't know, like, I just don't know how big a chunk of that is. But to your point, I think, like, so I don't know if it's wrong, but I would say that what I, th what I think is missing 
what I think could speak to you uh, and to me and, and to others like us is what, what a lost, like how many lost years we've had to deal with those kinds of issues, right? That for the past three years, our government has been tilting at windmills, getting into fights, uh, scandals, all you know, crypt, you know, you know, going after crypto, going after like all kinds, you know, blowing billions of dollars on pipelines to nowhere, you know, like attacking NGOs, uh, going after movie producers who put big, you know, like Bigfoot, all this kind of stuff. Like the amount of energy and money that has been wasted on these stupid fights, instead of spending that time and thinking about where are we going here in Alberta? What can we do to make Alberta, you know, like how can we make Alberta better exactly for like Joe and Jane Doe, right? Like how can we make this all like, so that to me is like, I guess what's missing. I don't, I don't fault them necessarily with um, for, for talking about the business aspects. I think the reality is like Calgary is a business town, you know, like I don't, I won't pretend to speak for Edmonton, but, but so I get that. But I think what's missing, I guess, because, because at the same time, it's also a very like, so you see, right? Like, cause like, you know, premier, trots out the CEO of Synovus, who, who says, I haven't heard anybody freaking out about investment yet. You know, like, which so is like, the most you know, hilarious, like, most tepid <laughs> quote to put in support right. of your, like your bill. But anyways, yeah, keep going. It, right. Exactly. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a mugs game too. Cause like, you know, these people won't invest. These people do invest. It's kind of like, you can't prove it. You can't, you know, the counterfactuals are really hard, but I feel like you can, I, I feel like there is a, 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 a way here to can, to just talk to people and be like, aren't you, aren't you tired of all of this? Like, surely there are things, don't we just want a government that's like actually not in the news all the time. And that is just working diligently in good faith, you know, like, and on that front, you know, like, I, I don't know enough about BC politics, but like, I kind of feel like that's what's going, like, if we want an example of what a government that's just like, kind of like trying to do the, like trying to govern, you know, and, and trying to solve problems, I feel like they would give it, they give a pretty good example of that. And, you know, like, so, you know, again, of just like, you know, and they had huge challenges, right? Like the, you know, like, again, climate change, you know, essentially wiped out huge chunks of their like major artery, major infrastructure. Right. And like, but they, they got in there and they crushed it. And then they even seemed to make it like a, actually a point of sort of like provincial pride. And, and like, I don't know about you, but I was following the, like the BC highways, uh, Twitter, um, profile and they had you know that was like amazing watching this like engineering that was happening right and and so i i guess i just think that to me and, and to your point like issues like inflation issues like affordability these are things that you can you can tackle issues like housing you know you can do that but you can't do it if you're constantly setting your hair on fire and raging and foaming about something that ottawa did like so so again just you know and maybe that's a bit rant but like i just think for me when i think about the last four years and when i think about the potential next four, right? It's just like, how much time will we lose um, if we keep electing people who are just like completely obsessed and myopic um, on on these like on 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 like three or four issues when there's so much more that we could be like addressing and doing effectively. Mm -hmm. And and like I don't want to turn this podcast into a like here's what I think the NDP should do podcast. Yeah. Not, they, they don't need, one. They don't. They're not going to listen to my advice anyways. And two, it's like I mean, at the end of the day, if you want, you can just listen to me on Twitter. Lots of people on Twitter who have who should who tell you what the NDP should do. But like, uh, I just 
I don't think it's a very effective tactic to just be like, here's what the Chamber of Commerce thinks. You're like you are the ostensibly social democratic party. You know, you're supposed to represent workers. Like how how is the Sovereignty Act going to affect workers? I don't think that case has been made. Um, you know, and, and maybe the, the conversation that we've had today has maybe laid clear why hopefully laid clear about why, you know, regular ass people who are worried about having to go pay for their family doctor or just the, what their fucking grocery bill is um, about why this is important, because it is it is a, it is a step towards dictatorship. It is a concentration of power. And, you know, it's it's very funny that, like, you know, Daniel Smith is mad about Ottawa exercising power that it shouldn't. And as a as a result uh, and as a reaction has instead just like essentially crowned herself, you know, queen of this shadow court of Alberta that gets to to pronounce on the constitutionality of, of federal laws. But that's where we're at right now. And, uh, you know, the Alberta NDP are definitely running on the on what you talked about. Right. Which is like we promise to be sane. We promise to be like, you know, the, the Joe Biden. Pitch, right? which is like, <laughs> yeah. We promise to not be in the news, uh, you know, yeah. is essentially their pitch. And look, uh, that's clearly what they're going with. Uh, I don't think if I was running a political campaign or a political party, that's what I would do. But again, I'm not in charge of the Albert NDP, but I think I want to thank you for your time for coming on, Martin. I think this has been an incredibly illuminating conversation about, you know, an, a piece of legislation that is important, that that has dominated news coverage, but I don't think has really been thoroughly understood. So thanks. Thanks again for coming on. And if people want to follow along with you and the work you do, what's what's the best place for people to do that? Well, yeah, so I'm on I'm on the Twitter machine as well. So it's at, at M-O-L-S-Z-Y-N-S. And, um, and of course, pronounce, I'm at pronounce the University Molson's. of Calgary. Yes, that's right. Um, <laughs> I'll never, I thought about changing it to like actually something more reasonable, but no, I just can't. It's like, it's like part of me now. It's, um, it's ingrained in my brain. But, um, and then, yeah, I'm at the law school and I get emails every once in a while. So most of them are pretty decent. Um, so yeah, and I'm around. The Alberta Law Blog too, if you're not, if you're not following the, the, the output of the Alberta, the Alberta Law Blog, it's, it has a funny name that is a, that is an Arrested Development reference, but it is also yeah. uh, one of the best places for legal analysis that you can get in, in Alberta. So definitely follow them as well. Yeah, that'd be great. Absolutely. Yeah. And folks, if you like this podcast, um, you know, if you like what we do, if you uh, think you want to listen to more content like this, please join the 500 or so other folks who help keep this independent media project going. There will be a link in the show notes, but you can also go to progressreport.ca slash patrons, put in your credit card, and contribute. We would really appreciate it. Uh, also, if you have any notes, uh, thoughts, comments, uh, e-transfer donations that you would want to send my way, uh, you can send those to K at progressalberta.ca. Uh, I'm also on Twitter as well, far too often at, at Duncan Kinney. Uh, thank you to Jim Story for editing this podcast. Thank you to Cosmic Family Communist for our theme. Thank you for listening and goodbye.